they ever handed those out. I mean, yeah. Just... So, Ed, I think you should uh, acknowledge the fact that this is Adam Levinson's show, and you're starting to talk. Oh, you're, I'm like talking too much. You're like sitting Adam. on a bus okay. stop waiting for the bus. All right, know? I'll let him. I'll Adam, let him talk. could you take over and never stop speaking for like 55 minutes and don't let Ed Vidal interrupt no, sometimes you? Sometimes he has questions. I have, I have the and Bill of Rights. Ed's got the Bill of Rights in his hands, so, but don't let him talk. You're more important. Thank you for joining us here today. We're at the Statues and Stories on WSQF 94.5 with Adam Levinson. Go ahead, my friend. Tell me what rights I don't have. So what we are doing tonight, everybody, and, uh, and thank you for joining in. This is a discussion about the Bill of Rights, and I will point out to everybody that we could probably spend several hours discussing the Bill of Rights. Uh, because it is uh, a bedrock. And tonight what I'm going to do, rather than uh, sort of uh, trying to cover the history, I'm going to start by asking some questions. And then my goal is, over the hour, to try to answer those questions. And these are questions that uh, surprised me as I was reading about the Bill of Rights. And ultimately what this is going to result in is, is a series of posts on the website, statutesandstories.com. And it's really, I think, a fascinating conversation about what is the Bill of Rights, what is the background behind the Bill of Rights, and here are some of the questions that I'm going to tee up for today. So the first question I have, which we'll answer, is why was the Bill of Rights, and this is surprising for a lot of people, why was the Bill of Rights unanimously voted down, the idea of having a Bill of Rights, unanimously voted down at the Philadelphia Convention, which was the Constitutional Convention when they wrote the Constitution. And by way of background, it was in the May, late May, all the way through September is when that hot summer, when all the famous founding fathers got together um, and they wrote the Constitution and all the compromises and the, the wonderful document that was crafted. So why is it that they voted down a Bill of Rights? So that's the first question that we're going to go through and try to answer. Another question that we'll try to answer today is Madison switches his position because, as I said, all the founders who were at that convention vote down on that day the idea of having a Bill of Rights, and Madison changes his mind and switches. So we're going to try to understand why is it that Madison, who was one of the opponents of the Bill of Rights, uh, comes around and realizes that there is value in having a Bill of Rights. So that's another very interesting question to talk about. And the third question is, what did the founders think about the Bill of Rights? And there's some irony here that will, that will come out during our conversation tonight. So let me ask uh, the group that are with us in the studio. Um, there's a lot we can cover, and this is probably going to have to go into several other nights. Uh, but do you think it makes sense to begin by talking about natural rights? And we can talk about some of the Enlightenment thinkers. We can begin by talking about the... Um, the objectives of the Philadelphia Convention. Well, we can begin by talking about what's in the Bill of Rights, and what do you think is a good logical starting well, place? To, a, a, well, you, a, have to, you have to start by the natural. Well, law. yeah, but Adam, you know, one thing is, I, I we can we can start by addressing those three questions. Okay. All right. So I, I think the end will be more interesting is as as we go through, and I've got a lot of quotes I've put together. Okay. So a way for me to mention the Statutes and Stories website. I am not a trained historian. I only have a bachelor's degree in history and also in political science. But the, what the Statutes and Stories website does is it uses primary sources. And there are wonderful letters that are written back and forth between the founding fathers and mothers, and newspaper articles, and opinion pieces, and uh, pamphlets that they would write. So today we'll be going into the Federalist Papers and what's now been called the Anti-Federalist Papers. And some of them use some irony and some it's a very interesting uh, terminology to describe why they were opposed or like the idea of a Bill of Rights. So, uh, so you're right. So we'll talk with some of these ideas of natural rights. Yep, and go ahead. Part of this, by the way, uh, 
um, is what my kids just learned in their, and they're still learning this in their history class and their civics class because this is very important for kids to understand also. So by all means, if, uh, if people want to join us in the future to the podcast, then let your kids join to listen. So we're going to start by talking about some of these underlying rights that are recognized in the Bill of Rights. And uh, of course, the American colonies were originally English colonies. And there is a famous charter from the year 1215. Does anyone want to spell throughout the name of where King John and Runnymede agrees to a document? Starts with the letter M. In Magna Carta. Come on. Okay, so the Magna Carta in 1215 is the beginning during the Middle Ages of the, the notion of putting limitations, and it was the barons and the, the aristocracy puts limits on King John, and they say to him that you can't declare war, or I'm sure you, you can't uh, have, a, have an army uh, unless uh, you get us to pay for it, and uh, what else are they putting in the Magna Carta, by the way, has about 63 different provisions. My understanding is it was originally written by the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, so it puts limitations on the monarch that you need all of it. Right. I'm sorry? He was the only guy who could write. <laughs> so it puts limits on what the king could do, and it also requires a council of barons. So this would become later Parliament. I think it was originally 25 or so barons that the king would have to check with before he wants to raise taxes on the barons. And those are rights, by the way, of the aristocracy. These are not rights as of 1215 on the commoner. Uh, then, as you go across English history, I'm going to skip ahead now to the English Bill of Rights, because a lot of these ideas are going to get captured in the American Bill of Rights. So the English Bill of Rights is 1689. And the English Bill of Rights grows out of an important event in English history, and this has to do with, and let me get into probably more detail than people need, uh, but the idea here was that uh, there was a, a king uh, who was being replaced by a, a daughter, and uh, the daughter and the uh, Let's give some of the names of who we're talking about. Uh, but for the English Bill of Rights, we're talking about uh, William, who is actually from the Netherlands, but he's married to Mary. So William and Mary, there's a college named after William and Mary. And during the Glorious Revolution, which is what this period is called in, in English history, during the Gro Glorious Revolution, James, who was the king, gets replaced by William and Mary, and they agree to certain limits. So in addition to the Magna Carta from 1215 and 1689, William and Mary agree to have a constitutional monarchy. They're going to agree to more limits because they were coming in from Holland uh, and they were coming in as Protestants as opposed to the concern by a lot of the Protestants in England that there would be a Catholic king. So they replaced one king, they brought, him in William, brought in William and Mary, and they agreed to a bunch of limits on the king, which is a constitutional monarchy. So that's the English Bill of Rights. Um, and that, by the way, this notion of the people being able to control their government to get rid of James and to bring in William and Mary uh, gives rise to Enlightenment thinking. So what is the Enlightenment? And the Enlightenment is a period where, um, you know, these, it's not just science, it's the philosophers and all kinds of looking at nature and looking at how can we improve ourselves through knowledge. So this is a period during the late Middle Ages, uh, you know, really early modern times in a way, where some of these names that we won't go into too much detail today, but Locke and Montesquieu and Rousseau and Voltaire, so uh, real quickly, well, why is Locke so important? Because when Jefferson starts writing the Declaration of Independence, and when Mason, George Mason, who was the, the author of the Virginia Declaration, or, he's the author of the, the Virginia Constitution and the Virginia Bill of Rights. So the Americans aren't just making stuff up. They're borrowing from these Enlightenment thinkers, particularly John, John Locke. And John Locke has this notion of natural rights. What does natural rights mean? Uh, and there are three primary natural rights that he likes to focus on, but this is life, liberty, and property, basically, that these these rights are pe people are born free, and we can talk later about uh, another night about the, some of the books that he wrote, two treatises on government, and we can talk about how Locke compares with Hobbes, um, who wrote the Levant.
Leviathan. But long story short, these idea of natural rights that belong to everybody uh, in a state of nature, these rights, uh, they're inherent. They, they exist on their own. Government doesn't give you rights. These rights uh, you're born with uh, come from Locke. Uh, and Montesquieu, by the way, uh, is French. He writes about ideas of separation of powers. Rousseau is convinced that democracy, and he's, it's ironic because Rousseau is from France, and they have a, a monarchy which uh, is quite repressive in some respects. So nevertheless, these ideas are coming out, and Voltaire will mention real quickly, uh, believed in tolerance, freedom of speech, religion, and freedom of religion, and, and all kinds of ways of respecting people and their natural rights. So these, these ideas are captured in the English Bill of Rights, and then when, and, and to flip ahead now 100 years, uh, and it's interesting because the English Bill of Rights is 1689, and uh, 100 years later, 1789, is when we have our first Congress, and the American Constitution is written in 1787. Let me throw out a trivia question to you. So we know, everybody, that our Constitution was written in Philadelphia, and that's where the the Declaration of, of Independence is written in Philadelphia. That's where the first Continental Congress was meeting. Uh, that's where the Constitution is written over that summer, that hot summer in 1787. But the Bill of Rights, the American Bill of Rights, 1789, is not written in Philadelphia. It's not written in Independence Hall. Uh, so um, people may know this uh, from prior evenings, but where were the Bill of Rights? And we're going to start talking now about the American Bill of Rights. Where were the American Bill of Rights written, if anyone wants to take a guess? Wasn't it the Virginia... Uh, state uh, constitution? No, Congress was meeting in New York. The hint is that uh, because the Bill of Rights was not part of the original constitution in Philadelphia, the Bill of Rights is written by the first Congress. So really the question is, that's a little bit of a trick for me to phrase it that way. But But it wasn't, but excuse me, it it wasn't repeated in any state constitution? They didn't have any list of... separate from state constitutions. Yeah, I thought maybe they were copying a they state. They were copies in many respects, but co- I thought a, another colonial state had a Bill of Rights. None. They might have, but okay. Anyway, so co- continue. Was meeting in New York. So for a brief period of time, for the first session of the first Congress, they met in New York. And this gets into, that's how we get the Bill of Rights. Uh, and remember, at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, they voted it down. It was within the last yeah. week. So this is in late September of 1787. And I'm, I'm going to give you different reasons on why they voted it down. But uh, the Bill of Rights is adopted in, it's, it's written in New York. And Manny, you're right, that they did borrow, and it's primarily Madison who, who drafts the Bill of Rights. And uh, give me five minutes before the end of the hour, because I've got a couple quotes about the importance of James Madison from some of my favorite historians. And I always like to point out that um, I should tell you the books I have in front of me, but uh, this has involved uh, a good number of uh, books, including uh, Gordon Wood and uh, Ellis and some other historians who've uh, written at length about this period of time. So I want to quote them at the end of the hour. So tell me what I've got. Are you going to quote Liz Cheney? No. Uh, so, by the way, there are a bunch of books that were written about Madison. I was told I had an inside information that you've written, I mean, you've read a book written by Liz Cheney. So there are several biographies of Madison, and since Madison is the father, if you will, of the Bill of Rights, and we're going to understand why that is, I've looked at several biographies about Madison. So uh, we'll have more to look forward to today. So here we go. We're going to we answered the question that the Bill of Rights is written in New York, not in Philadelphia. So let, let's get into this question of of why was it that it was voted down? And the quick answer is that it was it was a series of compromises that were hammered out during that summer, and towards the end of the session, they they realized that if we were to start doing a new Bill of Rights, 
that might unwind, and this is what I think a lot of historians will agree, would have potentially started to unwind some of the compromises. Yeah. So let me give you some of the reasons that the Federalists were opposed to a Bill of Rights, which sort of sounds counterintuitive. You know, for us today, the Bill of Rights is, you know, on the same pedestal as the Declaration, and it's arguably more important than the Declaration. Some would argue it's even more important than the Constitution. Right? The Constitution is a framework for our government, but the Bill of Rights puts limitations on what government can do, and it preserves our inherent natural rights. So what are the reasons that the Federalists gave for not wanting to do a Bill of Rights? And I'll start with uh, Hamilton, because I'm a big Hamilton fan. And it surprised me that Hamilton was opposed to a Bill of Rights. So the quick answer, and he talks about this in Federalist 84, and we'll put links to all these materials once we get the, uh, the, these links up and running. Mm-hmm. So he writes, and he, he asks this question, why declare things that shall not be done when there is no power to do them. So his concern, and I'm I'm sort of simplifying it, but he thought a Bill of Rights would be dangerous because you can't list all your rights in a Bill of Rights. And why is it necessary, he was asking, to declare rights when the federal government, which was a government of limited power, remember that uh, Article I of the federal constitution uh, enumerates powers to Congress. And if Congress doesn't have the power to infringe the freedom of the press, for example, you don't need a Bill of Rights, according to Hamilton, to tell Congress it can't do what it can't already do. So his concern was if we started enumerating rights, we're going to, by definition, leave other rights that we want to make sure that all the rights are protected. So he says, well, I declare that things shall not be done when there is no power to do them. So he was concerned, again, that the Bill of Rights could be interpreted, if we did a Bill of Rights, by omission. If we left things out, that could be harmful. And he also, interestingly, has an analysis about the original Bill of Rights, and we talked about this earlier, came out of England when there was a king. And the purpose of the Bill of Rights were to put limits on what a king can do. But in the context of America, we didn't have a king. We had a president. We had a Congress. We had we the people. So let me give you some more examples of what the founders were saying. Well, I got, I got some uh, observation right away is that our very first right actually has four rights in it, right? Five, uh, yeah. Five, five rights. The redress of grievances, yeah, speech, yep. faith, uh, no, well, religion, speech, faith, public assembly, and the redress grievances. So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. We... We kind of like cheated. We had <laughs> ten civil rights, well, but inside uh, there, well, he, he he made a good l- lawyer's argument. When you're drafting a document, <clears throat> you don't want to do redundancies, and so he's saying the the federal government is a government of limited and enumerated powers. So if the power is not enumerated, they don't have the power to do it. So it's contra- It's kind of like it's belt and suspenders to then say, and you shall not do this and that. But sometimes, you know, politics is not law. And sometimes you got to do it. Yeah. Continue, Adam. Let me flesh out this analogy that Hamilton is using. And he writes the Federalist Papers, of course, with Madison, and about five of them are written by John Jay. So he makes the analogy that bills of rights were originally written between kings and subjects. And in America, the people retained everything. Uh, so it's we the people. And he quotes the preamble of the Constitution. So he's concerned that uh, we'd be flipping a bill of rights on its head. We didn't need a bill of rights. And he thought it could be dangerous to have a bill of rights. Mm-hmm. Let me talk about Noah Webster. And he was not just a dictionary publisher, but he also was a printer, and he uh, was, a, was a very active Federalist, and he, he wrote a lot. In fact, at one of our um, one of our museum events, we, we had some uh, newspaper articles by Noah Webster. But uh, this is what Noah, and he was sort of sarcastic in some of his writing. So let me quote you from Noah Webster. He says, everybody shall, and he's asking the question, how do we list all of our rights? So he says, everybody shall, in good weather, hunt on his own land, and you should have the right to catch fish in all rivers, and Congress shall never restrain any inhabitant of America from eating and drinking, or prevent lying on your 
left side or in the night flipping over to yeah. your right side. So he's trying to illustrate that, you know, do we have to list all these rights? This would, ne would never end if we listed all our rights. Now, Benjamin Rush, another Federalist, um, he uses even stronger language. He says it would, it would be absurd to have a formal declaration that our natural rights are acquired from ourselves. Because remember, it's we the people that created the Constitution. So this is the resistance that you're seeing by the early Federalists. And here's another dimension to some of the resistance to a Bill of Rights. This is Charles Pinckney, and he is from South Carolina. And before I give you the reason why Pinckney doesn't want a Bill of Rights, let me point out to you that the first Bill of Rights in America, which was in the Virginia Constitution, was written by George Mason. And I've become a big fan of George Mason as I read more and more about the Constitution in this period of time and the Bill of Rights. And Mason was one of three founders who did not sign, who were there at the end but did not sign. And the reason Mason doesn't want to sign, and it wasn't just Mason, it was also uh, Eldridge Jerry and uh, Edmund Randolph refused to sign for a couple of reasons, sign the Constitution Oh, uh, because they were from New York. No, so, they were from New York. Uh, Edmund Randolph is from Virginia. Mason is from Virginia. Jerry is from Massachusetts. Jerry, I think, is from Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Was it, wasn't New York the, the sole holdout? No, no. And the, no. And, and the final signing of the Constitution? No, Ma uh, Alexander Hamilton signed for New York. Because the others wouldn't show <laughs> up. signer from New York because the other two delegates from New York left. Wouldn't, they, uh, wouldn't sign. They were not part of the process. They opposed it almost from the beginning. Yeah. So here I want to make the point a little bit about how Mason, who deserves a lot of credit for um, building on and, and capturing these ideas of natural rights. So early on in 1776, Virginia is the first state to have a Bill of Rights, and other states then copy the Virginia Bill of Rights, which is principally written by by Mason, George Mason, and also Madison. Madison helps him to a certain extent draft the Virginia Bill of Rights. In fact, Thomas Jefferson credits, James, credits George Mason as being the, and I'm not going to quote it exactly, but basically saying the brightest man of his generation. So for Jefferson to say that Mason is, is a bright guy, that tells you something, that Mason um, was, was very learned, and he, he was very familiar with all the old English notions of rights and, and the philosophers we talked about earlier. So. When it came time to draft a Bill of Rights for when, when, when eventually Madison decides he has to draft one for reasons that we'll talk about, uh, Pinckney points to uh, Mason's Bill of Rights, which was in, in Virginia. And let me tell you how the, the Virginia Bill of Rights starts, uh, and this is going to sound very familiar. So the Virginia Bill of Rights starts off by saying, and I won't read all of it here, but that all men are created equally free and independent and have certain inherent natural rights of which they cannot by any compact deprive or divest their posterity, among which are enjoyment of life and liberty and the means of acquiring and possessing property and obtaining happiness and safety. So basically, Bill of Rights, we're saying, starting with the Mason example, the Mason-Virginia Bill of Rights from June of 1776, that all men are created equally free and independent. If you're from South Carolina, Charles Pinckney is from South Carolina. South Carolina is known at that time frame for, for several things, uh, but one of which is the answer to the question, why does Charles Pinckney uh, have a resistance to having a Bill of Rights when Bill of Rights, quote, generally begin by declaring that all men are free and born natural or naturally born free? Slave state. Right. So Pinckney is worried that if we do a federal Bill of Rights, that would be a problem for South Carolina to say that all men are free and equally born, independent, etc. So for Pinckney, it's a slavery issue why he doesn't want to have a Bill of Rights. So we talked about Pinckney. We talked about Noah Webster, that he thinks it's absurd, and also Benjamin Rush. Uh, Fisher Ames says that there would be no end if we were to try to put in place a Bill of Rights. And they'd spent four months 
creating the Constitution. The last thing that they wanted to happen was the Constitution to start unraveling if they started to have to prepare a Bill of Rights. So they thought it was unnecessary, and states, by the way, have their own Bill of Rights. And maybe later we'll have time to talk about the Northwest Ordinance. That's, that's what I was talking about in the beginning. The states had their own Bill of Rights. Virginia. Right, most of them, about nine or so of the states, had Bill of Rights in one form or another in their state constitutions. So that's why the founders in that summer in 1787 didn't think it was necessary to have a Bill of Rights. So let's now skip ahead. They, they signed the Constitution, and this is uh, Constitution Day, September 17th is when it gets signed. They get sent out and distributed around the country, but it has to go through the, uh, the process of getting ratified by the states. And what happens when the Constitution is sent out to be ratified, and some of the smaller states, New Jersey and Delaware, and Delaware is the first, quickly ratify, but you need to get nine states to ratify, and they started running into problems in Virginia and in New York and in Massachusetts. And we're going to talk about not just the Federalists, because the Federalists supported the Constitution, but the Anti-Federalists did not support the Constitution, and one of their major objections, so here, let's tee it up. What was one of the, there are several reasons why a lot of the Anti-Federalists didn't like the Constitution, but what is one of their primary first answers on why uh, they think the Constitution needs to be changed and why they didn't like it? Well, a loss of power among the states. They didn't want to, cent- right. they didn't want to centralize power. And what did they want to make sure that the Constitution had? A Bill of Rights. Bill of Rights. So the, the, the anti-federalists, and we'll talk later about who some of them are, but uh, this is Patrick Henry. Give me liberty or give me death, Patrick Henry. And we mentioned George Mason, who wrote the Virginia Bill of Rights. Right? He makes the motion uh, to add a Bill of Rights in the last week of the, that summer in Philadelphia, and he gets voted down. Um, for the reasons we talked about earlier. So what's the point? The point is that um, they didn't have a Bill of Rights in the original Constitution, but now it comes time to ratify the Constitution. And the Anti-Federalists, and it's fascinating, by the way, to read, and we'll put all kinds of links, to read what's happening in the newspapers. This is before you had news, before you had the Internet, and people would pick up pens and they would write under pseudonyms. Uh, and it got very interesting to read. You know, the, the, usually they're nice and they're professional about it, but they go into the details about these, these arguments and the minutia of should we have these rights and what should the rights be? And what should the Constitution say? You know, it's not perfect, but how can we improve it? So there is a very famous founding father who was in Paris. He's not at the Philadelphia Convention. And I'll give you a hint. He had written the Declaration of Independence. Uh, he was the primary author of the Declaration of Independence. But he was our ambassador to Paris in 1787 when the Constitution's being written. And James Madison is very close with his fellow friend from Virginia. So they have good correspondence that we'll be quoting uh, back and forth between Paris and Virginia. Uh, so... What does who is this person I'm talking about who is in Paris and doesn't get the right to Got to be Franklin. No, no, Thomas Jefferson. Oh, Jefferson. So Jefferson is involved interestingly in writing the French Bill of Rights, which is the Declaration of Rights of Man. So he's writing the the, the French Declaration of of Independence if you will and the French Bill of Rights. Uh, but in America he communicates back and forth because uh, over their lifetime they would that's what the founding fathers and mothers would do. So they would communicate, and we've got access to all of their letters, or at least many of their letters. So Jefferson looks at the Constitution, and he immediately realizes there are two big problems with the Constitution, one of which was that it didn't have a Bill of Rights. So he, he liked the Constitution, and over time he realized there were lots of benefits, but he was horrified that it did not have a Bill of Rights. So he writes to Madison and explains, this is a problem, we need to get a Bill of Rights. And Madison eventually be- begins to realize that Jefferson is right. Uh, so here's some of the reasons that Jefferson gives. He thinks it can be, maybe even if we don't need it, he still thinks it can be a brace, it can be a structure, like 
an architectural uh, set of provisions that will shore up and supplement the Constitution. So they really weren't worried about the federal government hurting people's rights because uh, they, they thought the, stack, the states would keep everything in check. But the Jefferson realized, and, and Madison too realizes, that if we sort of set up a, a, a list of rights, and maybe one of these days I'll, I'll, I'll find some of my quotes about this and we'll be online. <clears throat> but if we have this list of rights, judges will be able to enforce those rights. And they, they happen to have been big fans of, and I'm horrible pronouncing some of these names, but George Wyeth, I think is how it's pronounced. And they had a lot of respect for some of the judges in Virginia. And they realized that if we had a Bill of Rights, uh, that uh, judges could use it to protect the rights of individuals, just as they were hopefully going to protect rights in, in the different states. So Jefferson realizes there are advantages, and he works on convincing, on convincing Madison. Also, Madison realizes what's happening at these conventions that we talked about, because the states have to ratify or the Constitution doesn't take effect. So in January of 1789, Madison switches, and he realizes, because it was such a controversial item, why don't we just do a Bill of Rights? And what we'll avoid doing is we won't put structural reforms. And this is one of the objectives of some of the anti-federalists. So we mentioned Patrick Henry. We mentioned Mason. We could go through a list later. But a lot of the anti-federalists wanted a second convention. And they thought if they were able to call a second convention, then they could get a Bill of Rights. But they could also try to weaken the federal government, because they, they didn't like many of them that the federal government had independent taxing power. They, they wanted under the Articles that the only, the only way the federal government under the Articles of Confederation could get money is if the states pointed it up and gave it to the federal government. And that was one of the reasons why the Federalists, Hamilton, Madison, Washington, Jay, uh, wanted a strong federal government with independent taxing authority. So the anti-federalists were calling for, Patrick Henry is one who we mentioned, a separate convention to clean up and weaken the federal government, and Madison was very afraid of that. He was afraid that if they did another convention, then um, it could unwind a lot of what they'd accomplished over that four-month summer when they wrote the Constitution. So he realizes that if we do a Bill of Rights before the first Congress, we can sort of take the steam out of the anti-federalists. So Madison decides what we'll do is we'll do a Bill of Rights with things that no one can disagree with. Really, that these rights will be the things that uh, everyone will agree. You should have the right to freedom of press and freedom of assembly. And you mentioned some of these men under the First Amendment, freedom to petition for the redress of grievance, um, you know, to prevent quartering of troops. So these are the things that they fought against the British so we can put in place the rights. No one's going to disagree with protecting rights that uh, we all agree that we have. So that's why Madison makes that change. And as it turns out, in so several of the states, Massachusetts is a good example, the adoption of the Constitution was conditioned upon a Bill of Rights being proposed. And it was a, a battle that took place at some of these conventions where, um, I want to say, in the neighborhood of uh, some conventions were longer than other others. And... Uh, you know, the historians have done a great job of getting into the weeds. Some of the conventions were, 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 were written down, and, and the stenographers would keep track of all of the discussions. Other conventions, it's more of a summary, uh, or they're written about in letters. But the, you get to, to understand the Constitution. It, it's important to understand what was going on at the ratifying conventions, which, by the way, boils you know, the dovetails with what the, you talked about in, in the last couple hours. So, again, during these ratifying conventions in Virginia and in Massachusetts and some of the other states in New York, the idea was that the anti-federalists were persuaded to vote, some of them, for the Constitution on the expectation that we ratify first, and this is the terminology that was used, ratify first, amend second. So if we adopt the Constitution, we can always amend it. And uh, that was another concern that some of the federalists had, that how many amendments do we have to make? And uh, once you start making amendments, what happens to the Constitution? So let's get into some of the weeds about Madison's switch. So 
know, he has he writes back and forth with Jefferson, and he has to campaign in order to get elected to the first Congress. And Patrick Henry, and I'll double check, I'm pretty sure was the governor at one point in, in Virginia, and also Edmund Randolph was the governor uh, in Virginia. And Patrick Henry controls a lot of the strings, if you will, in the Virginia House of Burgess, which is the Virginia legislature. And Patrick Henry uses his influence to prevent and of course, this is Madison. When Madison wants to run for Congress, um, he, he is not able to. And the way the Senate used to work back then, and we can talk about this in more detail. But back then, senators were chosen by the different states. Yes, so we like that. Patrick Henry, go ahead. Because Patrick Henry controls a lot of authority in the Virginia legislature, uh, he makes sure that Madison is not going to be chosen as a senator because the anti-federalists have a lot of authority in Virginia. So Madison has to run for Congress as a representative. And by the way, Patrick Henry makes sure that J James Monroe runs against Madison. And Madison eventually wins that election, but he has to campaign. And during that campaigning, he has to promise. He realizes, he puts his finger up and sees the winds blowing, that uh, in order to get elected, he has to commit. And he does. That he makes a pledge that he will support a Bill of Rights. So he does that in face of his opposition. And let me read from some of the statements that Madison makes during that campaign and during that, uh, during that time period. He recognizes that political truths declared in a solemn manner, which is what the Bill of Rights will do, political truths declared in a solemn manner acquire by degree a character of fundamental maxims of free government, and they, become, they can become incorporated within the national sentiment and counteract impulses of, of interest and passion. So what is Madison saying? He's saying that if we do a Bill of Rights, if it can be an education process, it can sort of establish how a free government should work, and that can tamp down and counteract uh, impulses uh, and passions and protect minority rights. So Madison becomes very important in that first Congress. He doesn't get to be a senator, but he gets to be uh, very close with Washington because he had always been close to Washington for lots of nerve from Virginia. And uh, he winds up writing for Washington the inaugural address. So if you're Madison and you realize that you made campaign promises and you realize that there are a lot of people that aren't going to like you if you don't follow through on your promise to get a Bill of Rights, he writes for Washington the inaugural address, and he puts in Washington's inaugural address language about how Washington, and this is a trivia for you, what is the only – in Washington – give a little bit of background. Washington's view of the president was he would let Congress do what Congress would do. So he would maybe tee up concepts, but he, he did not generally propose specific legislation. He left the, the legislating to Congress. But there is one and only one specific proposal that he makes in his inaugural address uh, when Washington makes his first speech uh, as, as the new president. You want to take a guess? What does Madison write in the inaugural address for Washington, which is a specific proposal of what Washington wants? I completely. I have no idea. We're all stumped. Yep. A, a bill of rights. So Madison oh, okay. Has <laughs> That's not so fair. Did he did he say what the bill of rights would contain in the speech? That the you know what I, I have it, but in order for me to flip around, I don't want that to make too much noise on the radio. But he he does in his inaugural address. He talks about not in great granular detail, but he talks about the concept okay. of having a bill of rights. And let's see if I can find it while I'm uh, not making too much noise. Uh, so that is in – and by the way, it, it's important that Washington does that because it sort of sets the stage. And then this is more background about how close Madison and Washington were, that uh, Madison writes the inaugural address for Washington. And then as the leader of the House, 
Madison writes the response to Washington, explaining that, yes, the, the Congress considers it their duty and they will make an effort to adopt a Bill of Rights. So a lot of the historians have pointed out that this was Washington. This is Madison writing to Madison, because Madison wrote the, the inaugural address. Good. He writes the congressional response to Washington. So he, he's writing both the speech and the response to the speech. So that tells you how much authority and how well respected he was by Washington and by Congress. All right, so uh, if I can find it later, I'll read you from, here it is, the inaugural address. So Madison inserts into the address, um, let's see, Washington made only one recommendation, and he suggested that Congress use the amendment procedures of the Constitution in order to, quote, promote public harmony. That's another thing that Washington and Madison wanted is harmony at first. So the purpose was to promote public harmony, that's a quote, and make, quote, the characteristic rights of freemen more impregnably fortified. So that's the language that's in the inaugural address, which we'll put a link to. The characteristics of freemen more impregnably fortified. But Washington also says, and Madison, again, is the one who wrote this, we have to be careful to avoid making any alteration in the Constitution that, quote, might endanger the benefits of a united and effective government. So they don't want to inadvertently weaken their new federal government, but he's willing to do things that will promote public harmony. And ultimately, what Madison winds up drafting is going to be rights-based Bill of Rights, as opposed to structural changes that a lot of the anti-federalists wanted. All right, so we talked about Madison, who writes the, the inaugural address for Washington. He also eventually writes a list of his proposals, and he's not dumb. He sent it to Washington because a lot of people respected Washington, the first president. And he has Washington write him back uh, Washington's opinion of Madison's proposals. And I'm going to read you from a Washington letter where Washington writes back to Madison on what Washington's thoughts were on Madison's proposals. So no one gets yep. to see this yet. This is just private communications between Washington and Madison. And Washington writes, and I'm paraphrasing, I'll quote some places, uh, he describes, after looking at all the proposals from Madison, he says, some of them, in my opinion, are, quote, importantly necessary. Others, though, of themselves, in my conception, not very essential. So Washington, some are some essential, some necessary, some not. Uh, he goes on to say, but even if some of them are not essential, they're necessary to, quote, quiet the fears of some respectable characters and well-meaning men. Upon the whole, therefore, Washington is describing, let's see what I did with it. Upon the whole, then, Washington's describing that uh, he wants the, the Bill of Rights to be adopted, some version of the Bill of Rights to be adopted. So that answers that quick question. So Madison has the president supporting this idea. Problem is, when he starts proposing it to the House of Representatives, he gets a lot of resistance. And we talked about some of the resistance that, you know, what does that first Congress have to do? They have to create the Treasury. They have to start raising taxes. They have to start creating the courts. They have to start creating the the, uh, the, you know, the branches of government, if you will, or the, the arms of the, of the federal government. So they have a lot of work to do, and a lot of the Federalists – uh, re- realized that they dominated the House and the Senate, and they did not want to waste their time on a Bill of Rights when they thought there was more important business. So Madison is not able to make any progress initially, but he does propose it, and he is forced to delay the Bill of Rights so they can do the other more important, um, you know, the, the housekeeping work that needed to be done by the first Congress. And I'll point out to you that if anyone goes to a shameless plug, go to the Statutes and Stories website and go to the index on the website, and you can see a lot of the early laws or statutes, because it's statutesandstories.com, a lot of the early statutes that were adopted by the first Congress, and this is something I may have pointed out on other nights, but what was the first law or first statute that was adopted by the first Congress? And this is in, in the, the first Congress met in, in the May time frame of 1789, if I'm not mistaken. So what, what was the first... Um, what was the first statute 
question if, if anybody remembers that was adopted by the first Congress, and I, I like to give the background that Raise you know, they do something earth-shattering, like creating the army or something. Uh, How about just tax? No, the oaths. How, All oaths? the oaths. Yeah. It, we the just... oath act. So it's very practical, is what I like to point out, that they needed to find out and figure out what the oaths would be that members of Congress would say, the senators and congressmen and, and congresspeople. So long story short, the first act of the first Congress was the Oath Act of 1789. And I'm pointing out to you that if you Google that, the Oath Act of 1789, I'm pretty sure that Statutes and Stories is one of the first hits on Google. All right, so uh, they postpone doing any work on the Bill of Rights because the Federalists want to do other things first. They want to get on with the business of governing, right? So we're now moving on to what I'm going to describe. And what was my first question? My first question is why was the Bill of Rights unanimously voted down? And I think we answered that question that they didn't think it was necessary and they thought it could be harmful. So why does Madison switch his position? And the answer is he sees all the opposition from the anti-Federalists and he realizes after after communicating with Jefferson over, over the intervening period when the Constitution was getting ratified that, you know what, maybe it's not such a bad idea to do a Bill of Rights, but a, a Bill of Rights based upon individual rights as opposed to something that, that might harm the structure of the Constitution as it had been agreed to. So eventually Congress gets to debate Madison's proposal, and on June 8th, he does a very interesting speech where he gives his reasons. And let me start trying to paraphrase some of the reasons that Madison lays out on why the Bill of Rights should be adopted. And it also gets into his, his thinking and, and how he led that Congress. He says it would quiet the minds of people uneasy about the new government. He says it'll help bring North Carolina and Rhode Island into the Union because they had not yet ratified the Constitution. He also says it will further secure people's rights and their public opinion without harming the government. And he says that perhaps it will allow judges to become more peculiar guardians of these declared rights. So he thinks judges will be able to help enforce these rights. Others thought that a Bill of Rights would just be a parchment, just be paper. But over time, the Bill of Rights has taken on true, true meaning, and it's, it's very important. What else happens during that during that first Congress? Uh, so long story short, they, they sort of kick the ball, and uh, they agree he wants to give a week to debate it. And the quick answer was they decided to send it to a committee. So Madison becomes the chair of that committee, and he basically puts on the table the Bill of Rights that he writes single-handedly, but borrowing from. And here the, the numbers are, <laughs> excuse me, the numbers are that about 200 proposals have been made by the state ratifying conventions. So he sifts through all the 200 proposals. He looks at the Virginia Bill of Rights and the different states, and he wants to choose provisions that will not be controversial that can be adopted without too much uh, opposition and uh, without pulling the threads on unraveling the Constitution. So I've referred to them as personal rights-based amendments, not structural. And it's also a defensive technique or a defensive strategy that he's using because the anti-federalists are going to be gunning for him. But if he's the one to propose it and if he's the one to get it through, it will disarm the federalists, the anti-federalists rather, who want to uh, do a second convention and undermine the Constitution. And that's one of the things that the uh, governor of, of New York, by the way, was an anti-federalist. This is uh, Clinton. Uh, not related to President yeah. Clinton. DeWitt Clinton or something like that. DeWitt Clinton, I think. DeWitt Clinton. So there are powerful anti-federalists who are trying to clamor for another convention. So Madison realizes I can d disarm them by uh, doing a Bill of Rights, which is what they've asked for. And here it gets really interesting, and this is how politics can be sort of ironic. So once the... Or moronic. That too. But once Congress 
Although here, they, they, what they accomplished is phenomenal. But here's a little bit of irony. So the first irony was that Madison was one of the opponents of the Bill of Rights, and now he's a big proponent of the Bill of Rights. So he does a big switch. So he's adaptable, right? He realizes that this is the right thing to do. And it's interesting what's going to happen with the Anti-Federalists. The Anti-Federalists are trying to get another convention, and they're trying to weaken the Federalists. And once they see that the Bill of Rights is being proposed and is moving through Congress, who becomes the opponents of the Bill of Rights? Want to take a guess? The Anti-Federalists. The Anti-Federalists. So the Anti-Federalists, and not all of them, but uh, I'll use Elbridge Cherry as an example. He was the one that, that made the motion, along with Mason, in September of 1787 to have a Bill of Rights. And now, as a, I don't know if he was a congressman or a senator, but now he's opposing the Bill of Rights because he wants to delay it uh, because he, he doesn't want what they were describing, the Anti-Federalists, and this is some of the language. They considered Madison's Bill of Rights good for nothing and calculated to, quote, amuse rather or rather to deceive because they didn't think that he was putting enough in the Bill of Rights. So here you have the Anti-Federalists are opposing their own idea of a Bill of Rights. And of course, the Federalists now get to put on the mantra and the coat and the and uh, you know the, 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 the pride of being the ones to promote the Bill of Rights when some of the Anti-Federalists are opposing it. So but, that, but, like, but Adam, irony. don't you... Uh, so, this, yeah. this, this back and forth, back and forth, doesn't that lead the, 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 the common observer to realize or to come to grips with the fact that Maybe this king wasn't so bad after all. If if, if you if you want to put a bill of rights to keep anyone to act as a tyrannical king, why was there so much uh, so much resistance for the bill of rights? So many. There are a lot of reasons, and I gave you at the beginning of the hour a lot of the reasons the Federalists gave, including Hamilton, that it could be dangerous. And Joseph Ellis, one of my favorite historians, he gives a more prosaic explanation on why they didn't, why they voted down unanimously the proposal to have a Bill of Rights by Mason, who made that proposal, seconded by Jerry. And um, so Mason proposed that he said, "Hey, we should have a Bill of Rights," and then it was Jerry who made the motion, which was seconded by Mason. But the long story short, uh, his explanation was they were just tired; they wanted to get out of there. They'd been working. Uh, simple, uh, layman's terms. <laughs> and they realized it was tedious, that um, you know there were a lot of compromises, it was dangerous to start tinkering with the machinery, and they just wanted to get home, and they didn't think it was necessary. So that's the reason that, that uh, Joseph Ellis gives. Um, so sometimes history can you know, be more simple, but there are lots of explanations. So let me talk now about some of the anti-federalists. And, you know, these guys are heroes because if they had not pressured Madison, Madison probably wouldn't have moved ahead with this. And he was committed, as I told you. He kept pressing the federalists to, to adopt a Bill of Rights. And again, Madison is the one that writes the, the proposal into the inaugural address by Washington. Uh, I, I didn't read, to, read it to you, but he gets a response from Washington where, maybe I did read it to you, <coughs> where Washington basically says, yeah, I support a Bill of Rights. So here's a political question for you. What is Madison able to do when he has a private letter from Washington saying that Washington supports Madison's ideas? What does Madison do with that letter from Washington? Publish it. So that's short of publishing it. What, what does he do with that letter? Uh, publishing it, everybody gets to see it. But uh, what's a step which is, I mean, if he publishes it, then, then everyone gets to see it, and maybe Washington might get upset. But uh, what else does he do instead of but publishing it? But let, yeah, you're, right, you're on the right track. Let people see it in his chambers? Right. So Madison is armed.
armed now with that letter from Washington, where Washington says some of it isn't necessary, but it's still good because, and I, I read it to you earlier, uh, because it'll, you know, even though some of the anti-federalists are, um, you know, are very opposed to the Constitution, we can embrace them, we can bring them into the Union right. uh, by giving them this, this and as long as it doesn't undermine the, the government and what we've been working for. So he is able to, and I'll give you the example now of one of the Federalists who was very opposed to a Bill of Rights, and this is Roger Sherman. And Roger Sherman is the uh, Federalist from Connecticut, and he's very famous for several reasons, but he's very important in helping write the Constitution. He's also very important in the Connecticut Compromise. That's the compromise between the Virginia um, Virginia proposal, the Virginia Plan, which Madison writes along with Eldridge Jerry, and the New Jersey Plan. The New Jersey Plan is the small state plan versus the Virginia Plan is the big state plan. And they settle on the Connecticut Compromise, which is Roger Sherman. So Roger Sherman, a lot of historians think, uh, switches his position when he sees that letter from Washington. So eventually when the Congress, and, and Madison, let me talk about his original proposal, then we'll do the anti-federalists. So originally Madison wants to, and, and this we can talk about in debate because there's no right answer. Originally, Madison's idea is to put these these rights into the body of the Constitution. So he wasn't proposing a Bill of Rights as it is today at the end of the Constitution. He wants to corkscrew it. His language is to interweave it, to, ingra to engraft it into the Constitution. And for lawyers out there or those that have a Constitution handy, he wants to put limitations on Congress in Article One. Um, I think it's Article One, Section Six. Mm -hmm. uh, also, limitations on the states. He wants to put that also in Article One to say that states can't do certain things, uh, and that's one of the amendments that he actually prepares on his own. He doesn't borrow that from any of the other states. Uh, let me mention that real quickly. So, uh, he considered of the proposals that he made, he considered one that he thought was the most important was a proposal, if I can find it, that would um, that would would basically protect the right of conscience. Uh, provide for freedom of the press and then put other limitations on the states. But that was uh, too ahead of his time, and the, the members of the, the original Congress did not, they struck that out of his proposal. So it largely went forward, but without that proposal by, by, by uh, Madison. So here's the question. When Madison proposes uh, to add this into the body and text to graft it into the Constitution, what is the objection that Roger Sherman has? And it's an unfair question. But, uh, you know, Roger Sherman is concerned that if we start corkscrewing right. all this into the Constitution, right, what's going to happen to the Constitution? When we had 39 people who signed and supported the Constitution, if we start adding and layering all these amendments into the Constitution, what was Roger Sherman's objection, if you want to take a, uh, a guess? I would think that the people would lose faith in the no, document yeah, together. You, you can't do that to a document. Roger Sherman was a cobbler, so he knew that you couldn't uh, redo a shoe by putting in <laughs> inserts or something like that. He, uh, so the, to, to rewrite the Constitution after it's already been signed is it would, nuts. The people would lose faith yeah, it would, in it. It would be nuts, yeah. So Madison's view and his original proposal was about 17 amendments. He wanted it to be engrafted into the body of the Constitution. He, he thought, quote, there is neatness and propriety if he can interweave it into those parts where they naturally belong in the Constitution, right? And uh, he also believes that, uh, you know, that it's most valuably applied, I'm sorry, this is what I was looking for earlier, uh, the proposal 
that he, one of the amendments that he wanted, which he thought was the most important, was to guarantee rights of equal conscience for the against the states, freedom of the press, jury trial, and protection of property from seizure. So he wants to specifically limit the states on those areas. Okay. And maybe on another night we'll talk about what the Bill of Rights actually does. But um, maybe it's important to mention, how does the First Amendment start? In other words, what does the Bill of Rights apply to? And the answer is, this is Prevent, preventing, uh, preventing or prohibiting Congress. Congress shall pass no law. So Madison, as I said earlier, actually wanted to put some prohibitions on the states, and it would take the Civil War and the 14th Amendment before we started doing that. Yep. But that proposal was voted down. So you're, you're right, guys, that Sherman, uh, his position was that uh, you know when people signed their name on the Constitution, that was what they were agreeing to. They weren't agreeing to all these other changes that uh, may unwind the, the whole purpose of why they met, and it would be confusing for people to add into the Constitution. Uh, so he wanted, which is eventually what they agreed to do, a, you know, at, at the end of the Constitution, which is where we have it, sort of an addendum to the Constitution. And um, that was the decision that they made. We talked about the irony that the, some of the anti-federalists were opposing the Bill of Rights because they didn't think it was enough. They wanted a stronger Bill of Rights, but not to apply to the states. They wanted more restrictions on the federal government. Let me give some of the names of the anti-federalists because I, I do think they're heroes in many ways. But William Henry Lee from Virginia was an anti-federalist. Elbert Jerry went to becoming a senator from Massachusetts. Um, I mentioned George Mason. So Mason wants to have nothing to do with the federal government. He is not happy, even though he worked and was very active in creating the Constitution. He does not find it and insists on the Bill of Rights. And ultimately, because of Mason pushing and pressuring Madison, we got the Bill of Rights. Patrick Henry is another Federalist. Edmund Randolph is an interesting story. So Edmund Randolph um, was the Attorney General of Virginia, and he, been, you know, he also uh, worked for Washington as Washington's lawyer right. during the earlier years. And he gets appointed later as the Attorney General by Washington. Um, who else? They, they write, many of them, under pseudonyms. So Brutus is a pseudonym that's used in the papers, and that may have been Melanchthon Smith or Robert Yates writing as Brutus. Uh, the Federal Farmer, some think, may have been Richard Henry Lee. George Clinton, who we mentioned before from New York, writes under the pseudonym Cato. Thomas Paine. This is Thomas Paine who writes Common Sense. is very opposed to the Constitution. You know, Thomas Paine's position is in Sam Adams, George Clinton. They thought that we had fought a war to protect rights, and now we're giving all these powers to the federal government. So they're really concerned. And then I want to mention Mary Otis Warren. And she's quite interesting. So she is a very educated, uh, her husband is also a, a founder um, So in the Massachusetts area. So Mary Otis Warren in 1788 writes a pamphlet called Observations on the New Constitution and on the Federal and State Conventions. And she writes under the pseudonym a Columbian Patriot. So she doesn't let you know that she's a woman when she writes as a Columbian Patriot. And she's an anti-federalist. So... Long story short, the Bill of Rights gets adopted through the House and the Senate, um, and, and you know they make minor changes and they change the organization, they regroup them. But but by and large, the Bill of Rights was written by Madison, taking Mason, George Mason from Virginia, Virginia Bill of Rights, and taking the proposals from about 200 of them from the different states and choosing rights that he did not think would be controversial, and he was right. The rights themselves weren't controversial. The criticism was that he didn't go far enough, and. Um, point out to you that uh, later Madison gets vindicated because he wanted to put restrictions on the states. And remember, everybody, that the Bill of Rights originally only applied to Congress. And then later on, the Bill of Rights gets incorporated. The courts over the years have recognized that the First Amendment, yes, will apply to the First, to, I'm sorry, the First Amendment will apply to the states 
gets incorporated through the 14th Amendment. We should do that on another night. Or how equal protection... Oh, that's interesting. So it, it, it didn't apply to the people, uh, only to Congress? It only didn't apply to the state government, only the federal government. So, the so, the sta- so in other words, a state could uh, abridge your freedom of religion, which they did. Some of the early states, especially Massachusetts, they had, uh, you know, you could have churches taxing, working with the government to, right. um, to not to establish a religion, but a lot of the, the, the preachers in the schools got their money from, and this gets into back then, there was not, especially in Massachusetts, um, so strong of a separation between church and state. Um, oh, I understand now why this separation, yeah, ch- yeah, church and state, yeah, came and out in, of nowhere because... Virginia. The Church of England was established. So the the pastors, those finks, are their first teachers' unions. Yep. Unreal. And in England, they still have that. The Church of England is the established religion. So people understand when we talk about the original Bill of Rights, as it was originally interpreted for the first hundred or so years, it only applied to Congress. Um, That's a a fantastic fact for the audience. How are we doing on time? We're down to seven minutes. Okay, so let me read some of these quotes, and then if we have more time, we can talk at a global level about the Bill of Rights. But these are three great quotes. So Gordon Wood, one of my favorite historians, in addition to Ellis, he says, talking about Madison, that without his doggedness, in fact, the Bill of Rights that modern Americans venerate would never have become part of the constitutional system. That's Gordon Wood from the book. Um, what is the name of his book? I have it right here. But Empire of Liberty by Gordon Wood. All right, so here is Joseph Ellis talking about the importance of Madison. So remember how Madison is referred to as the father of the Constitution, and Ellis explains in the book The Quartet that to call Madison the father of the Constitution is quite plausible, but it's also arguable given the significant roles played by others in Philadelphia. And Madison, by the way, I stop quoting, Madison doesn't want to take all full credit. He recognized that it was there were many hands in making the Constitution, and that's correct. So continuing to read the quote, quote from Ellis, so to call Madison the father of the Constitution is quite plausible, but it is also arguable given the significant roles played by others in Philadelphia, chiefly Grouvener Morris, because Grouvener Morris was the draftsman, if you will, of the Constitution. He uh, took the different articles and organized it with a committee on detail. He uh, rearranged the preamble, so Grouvener Morris had a very important role also. So Ellis continues, but there is no question that Madison was the father of the Bill of Rights. He wrote the first draft single-handedly, ushered it through the House, and negotiated with leaders in the Senate as the reduced as they reduced the 17 amendments proposed by the House to 12. Uh, so that's Joseph Ellis and the Quartet, and we can talk about, and this is interesting, they originally proposed 12, but the states only adopted 10. We should come back and talk about that, because that's only half true, because they initially adopted 10, and that's what the Bill of Rights is, by the way. The Bill of Rights is the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. They were all adopted in 1791. December of 1791 is when they got the required number of states to adopt the Bill of Rights, because it was adopted by Congress, but that was just a joint resolution. The joint resolution had to go through the states to get adopted. One more quote from Ellis. That'll be the last quote. Okay, last quote. Over the course of the ratification debate, it had become abundantly clear that the biggest mistake made by the delegates to the Constitutional Convention had been to omit a Bill of Rights from the final draft of the document, and Madison fixed that omission. Well, that will that's conclude good. our Statutes and Stories Hour. Well, Adam, thank you very thank much. You very I much, hope to yeah. see you soon, and uh, that was terrific. Yep, thank you. Stay free, my friends. That's the end of the Statutes and Stories. Stay tuned for... 
more rock and roll without commercials, which was a dream f- for many in the 60s and 70s to hear rock and roll without commercials. And that's what we do here at WSQF Blink Radio, community radio with an educational and patriotic twist. You can listen to us always on Mondays from 5 to 8. We work overtime. Ed, Ed gets uh, you know uh, 2 bucks an hour instead of $1 an hour. For uh, you know, I, I I pay fifty cents just to have "Make America Great Again" hat on. You know, just to see it on his head is worth you know the, the weight in gold. So stay free, my friends. Take care. We're going with ACDC, back in black.
what it's like to be the bad man, to be the sad man. Behind blue eyes, no one knows what it's like to be hated, to be faded, to telling only lies. But my dreams they are as empty as my conscience seems to be. I have hours only lonely. My love is vengeance that's never free. What it's like to feel these feelings like I do, and I blame you. No one bites back as hard on their anger. None of my pain and woe can show through. That's never free. Sad man behind blue eyes.